Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Galatians chapter 2. We are going to open uh, the second chapter uh, and continue in the study. We have about six weeks to go, so we're going to move through Galatians relatively quickly. A number of years ago, Don Shula, coach of the Miami Dolphins football team, was talking to a reporter about a player's mistake in practice. Don said, we never let an error go unchallenged because uncorrected errors multiply. Then the reporter said, isn't there a benefit in overlooking one small flaw? Shula said, what is a small flaw? I think about that all day long. What is a small flaw? I see that in my children. I've let a lot of things slide by because I was too tired. I didn't want another confrontation. But uncorrected errors do multiply. The book of Galatians is a record of a confrontation. This is a polemic. It's a fight about how to get to heaven. It's about how humanity can be reconciled with God and live with God in heaven forever. And any deviation from the truth of the gospel is not a small flaw. Any error that can lead someone into hell should never go unchallenged. Religion has been defined as a bridge, a connection point between humanity and God, between the natural and the supernatural. All societies throughout all of history in every part of the world have always practiced religion. Humanity has an inborn belief in the supernatural and a craving to connect with God. This should not surprise us. After all, people are created in God's image and therefore possess something of God's nature. Romans 1 and 2 tells us that God put the knowledge of himself into the human heart. His spiritual DNA is written on the human conscience. Furthermore, the universe, as you found out yesterday, if you were here at the creation conference, with its billions of galaxies, billions with the B, demands an explanation. Only an infinite supreme being is capable of creating the complexity and scale of the universe. Romans 1.19 says, That which is known about God is evident, visible. Within them, he's talking about all people, for God made it evident to them, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Humans know there is a God based on our conscience inside us and the physical universe outside us. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, once said, 
There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. So humanity seems to have this compulsion to connect with God, and it seems to be central to the human condition. But why do we crave a connection with God? You know, before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, you didn't need a bridge to God, because at that point in time, God and man were not disconnected. There was no separation. Remember on the sixth day, when God finished creating, he looked and he said, everything that was made, and behold, it was very good. Very good, which means there's no flaw. No breakage, no sin. God created people, you and I, in order to have fellowship with them, and Adam and Eve certainly did have fellowship with God. Before sin, God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I've often thought about what that must have been like. We're taking a stroll through the Garden of Eden with our friend God. Wow. They were friends. There was no sin. There was no broken relationship. There was nothing to hide. The Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. They didn't even know they were naked any more than a fish knows they're in water. That's just the normal condition they had. However, shortly after God pronounced everything very good, Satan revolted against God's rule and led one-third of the angels in a rebellion against God. And the very next thing we read is that Satan recruited the human race to help him in his war against God. Now, God knew that Satan was going to do this, and he had already commanded Adam in Genesis 2, 16. And he told him, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. When God gave him a command, he also gave him a consequence. And the consequence was, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely... Is that clear? It's clear. The command is clear and the consequence is clear. Okay. Just making sure we get it because I think Adam and Eve understood it. So then Satan comes to Eve in the garden and the first thing he does, he slanders God's character. He told Eve that God was lying to them. And if they ate the fruit, they would not die, but rather they would become like God. That's pretty heady stuff, right? Remember that Satan had rebelled because he wanted to be like God. And so he thought that this temptation to be like God would certainly entice Adam and Eve into joining his revolution. And it worked. Adam and Eve walked away from God and followed Satan. When they disobeyed God's command, they now feel guilt and shame over their broken relationship with God. And then they experience fear because they fear that God is going to hunt them down and kill them. Because he had said, in the day you eat from the fruit, you will surely die. That would be a logical conclusion. So they tried to hide from God. And we have been trying to hide from God ever since. Genesis 3.9 says, The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? By the way, we have said this many times in this class. When God asks you a question, he is not seeking information. 
God never asks you a question that he does not already know the answer to. So lying to God is really foolish, right? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So they went from being a friend of God to being afraid of God. And sin always creates separation and fear. So Adam and Eve, instead of running to God to solve their problem of separation, they ran away from God and tried to fix it themselves. They knew they were guilty, so they tried to cover their nakedness and their shame with fig leaves. I guess that's better than rose bushes, but fig leaves are they're large, but they're not that large. Now, this was the first act of religion in the world, fig leaves. The first act of false religion, the religion of Satan. Satan's lie is that you can cover your own sin. You can cover and mend your broken relationship with God by your own efforts. Every single religion in the world promotes this way to God. It's a self-improvement religion. It's a self-reliant religion. It's a self-religious system. It says, do more, do better, try harder, improve yourself. My relationship with God depends on me. If it is to be, it is up to me, you know, stuff like that. So God rejected Adam and Eve's fig leaf solution to their sin. He confronted them with it. He listened as Adam and Eve blamed everybody but themselves. Have you ever confronted your children or your grandchildren about sin and listened to them blame everyone but themselves? They won't take responsibility, right? And that's just when you want to whack them upside the head and say, Look in the mirror. I saw you do it, right? God saw Adam and Eve, and they blamed everybody else. Then God pronounces a curse on them and the entire creation as well. And we're left with this awesome sense of doom. And then, amazingly, God, who is merciful, took the initiative to restore their broken relationship with him. Instead of killing Adam and Eve for their own sin, which they deserved, God executes an innocent animal and uses its skin to cover their nakedness and shame. The very first physical death in God's creation was a mercy killing of an innocent animal. Adam and Eve, you know, we all deserve to die for our own sins, but God shed the blood of an innocent animal in the place of guilty humans. This was the very first substitutionary sacrifice, and of course its ultimate expression was in Jesus Christ. So we're really comparing two religious systems, Satan's religion and God's religion. John MacArthur notes that true religion, God's religion, is based on divine achievement, what God does. False religion, Satan's religion, is based on human achievement, what man does. God's way to make man right with him and to bridge that broken relationship is through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for human sin. The only thing man has to do is believe God by faith and humbly accept Christ's payments for their sin. And God's religion always makes who the center? Him, right? Satan reverses this and promises the world that you can have a right relationship with God based on what you do. It's on human achievement, right? 
The way to God is through morality, ritual, ceremony, rule keeping, or just best of all, just look in the mirror and decide that you are God yourself. And then you can do whatever you want, right? The problem is, of course, if you're God, uh, you lack some potency because there's a lot of problems in your life that if you're God, you should be able to fix. And that doesn't work that way. So Jesus highlights the difference between God's way of reconciling us to him and Satan's way of reconciling the promise, deceptive promise of reconciliation on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said there are only two ways and two gates, a broad way and a narrow way, a wide gate and a small gate. Jesus said most people are going to travel the broad way. And where does the broad way lead? Away from God to destruction. Very few people will find the narrow gate that leads to God and eternal life, but there is a way, and Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. And furthermore, once you come through the gate, Jesus said, I am not only the gate and the door, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So these two paths, these two religious systems, are mutually exclusive. There are not multiple ways to God. There is only one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, I say that by way of introduction because Paul writes this entire book of Galatians to confront this crisis that is occurring in the Galatian church. Church is. A little history. After Paul had established the churches in Galatia, he and Barnabas returned to Antioch, their home church. And within a year or two, Jews from Jerusalem came to visit that Galatian region, modern-day Turkey, and visit these churches. And they told the Galatian Christians that Paul was a liar. Paul had lied to them about salvation. Paul had said, faith alone in Christ alone is all you need for salvation. They said, no, 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 no. Faith alone in Christ alone is not enough to be saved. You also have to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. Jesus' work is not enough. But if you add your own work, it will be enough to get you into heaven. Now, this is like a small child who thinks that if they donate their weekly allowance, they can pay off the $20 trillion national debt. This is like believing that you can drain the Pacific Ocean with your teaspoon and your little beach bucket if you go to the coast, right? Not going to happen. Trying to add to Jesus' work is calling Jesus a liar because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, but these Judaizers promoted Satan's religion, which says you must add your work to Jesus' work. As Don Shula said, small errors have a way of multiplying. We don't let any error go uncorrected. Paul is going to confront these errors. And correcting errors and defining the gospel is so imperative because it's a matter of eternal life and death, and you don't get a do-over, right? When you leave here, you're not coming back here. In order for Paul to defend the gospel now, he is forced to defend himself because these Judaizers, these legalists, have claimed that Paul's gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, 
in Christ alone was not legitimate because he was not a legitimate apostle. They said, your gospel has a human origin. You made this up. It didn't come from God. So Paul spends the first two chapters of the book of Galatians defending his own authority and legitimacy as an apostle. He's going to demonstrate the gospel he preaches did not come from human sources, but came from God himself. So let's pick up the narrative in Galatians 1 and begin at verse 11, if you would. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Here's the principle. The gospel is God's plan, not man's. So, make time alone with God your number one priority. The gospel is God's plan, not man's. So make time alone with God your number one priority. I am amazed at the number of times and the frequency when we have a problem, the first thing we do is not pray. The first thing we do is get out the phone and call. Who do we call? Another human being. Is that wrong? No. Is it wise? No. Who should you always talk to first? Talk to the Lord first because He's the one who arranged the problem in your life. He allowed it. He may not be the author of it. So always talk to the king before you talk to anybody else. That's what Paul is saying. He said, when I received the gospel, I didn't get it from human sources. By the way, he goes into his background. He says, there is nothing in my background that would have made me open to receive the gospel, let alone promote it. I was the sworn enemy of Jesus. I aggressively pursued his church, even to the point of death. For Paul to go from murderer to missionary was a major miracle. Paul was saying, my own conversion is proof positive that the gospel I preach came from God and not a human source. There is no human gospel that would have changed me from an adversary to an advocate, right? Only the power of the gospel changed me from hating Jesus to loving Jesus. So not only was Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus from God, so was his calling. Paul says, I did not volunteer to be an apostle. I didn't sign up in Sunday school class. It was God's eternal plan before I was even born. God had set me apart, called me to be his apostle, and preached the gospel. This is not my idea. My apostolic authority comes directly from God himself and not from other human beings. So he's establishing his legitimacy as a divinely appointed apostle by saying, my conversion didn't come from human sources, my calling didn't come from human sources, and the content of the gospel I preached didn't come from human sources either. It came directly from God. 
He says, after my conversion and my calling, I didn't go to Bible college in Jerusalem. I wasn't taught by any of the 12 apostles. I don't have the good housekeeping stamp of apostolic credentials. I wasn't you know, commissioned by a human denomination out of Jerusalem. I didn't seek human wisdom trying to understand the gospel. God called me to Arabia. Rob's going to show you a map. This is very likely Nabataean Arabia. It is largely east and south of Israel, and it's desert. Lots and lots of nothing. God called Paul to Arabia so he could spend time alone with Jesus. Paul says, in the desert, I was isolated from people, and I was taught by Jesus himself. This gospel came as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And this is what I taught you. I'm not the author of this message. Jesus is the author. I am the messenger. All pastors, all teachers don't author anything. We simply convey the truth that God wrote. So when you share the gospel with people, you don't have to make it up. You don't have to embellish it. Keep it very simple. Just say what God says, right? Say yes. Thank you. I want to make sure you're still there. Go to chapter 2, please. Verse 1. <clears throat> then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up. I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who are of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Here's the principle. Never compromise the truth of the gospel, since the eternal destiny of people depends on it. Never compromise the truth of the gospel, since the eternal destiny of people depends on it. So Paul's demonstrated the, the divine origin of the gospel message and now he's going to tell them, look, I presented the gospel I preached to you to the apostles, and ultimately they endorsed it. He went to Jerusalem because he brought a famine relief. The church in Jerusalem had experienced a lot of persecution and a lot of financial pain and suffering. By the way, there was also a rather significant famine in that region. So Paul had been collecting an offering from the Gentile churches to bring a famine relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, and that was the occasion for him coming there. And when he came, he brought Barnabas, who was a Jewish Christian, but he also bought Titus. Titus was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile, and he was a Christian as well. So at this meeting, Paul tells them, here's the gospel I've been preaching for the last 14 years. Faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone is all you need for salvation. No works, no circumcision, no Mosaic law, no rules uh, in terms of, i got to do this in order to be saved. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That was his message to the apostles. And they agreed. The apostles said, Titus does not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, you don't have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. It was obvious that Titus was a follower of Jesus. He was not following the Mosaic law, but he was following Jesus. 
And Paul tells the Galatians, look, my preaching is very much in alignment with what Jesus said because they accepted Barnabas and me into full fellowship. But just because the apostles approved what Paul was doing didn't mean Paul didn't have opposition. He calls this opposition false brethren. Now those false brethren were Jews who pretended to be Christians, but they were the ones who taught that Christ alone was not sufficient for salvation. And Paul uses some pretty graphic terms to describe them. He calls these false brethren spies who sneaked in to spy out our Christian liberty. These were legal eagles. They were demanding that Titus be circumcised before accepting him as a Christian. That would slow down membership drives. <laughs> Just saying. So Paul says, no way. That is slavery to the law, and we're not going to do that. We're not going to compromise even in the smallest detail. How many of you know legalists? How many of you have suffered from that malady before or still do? Yeah, I do. Legalists love their lists of do's and don'ts <coughs> because it feeds our pride and self-righteousness. Legalists are charter members of the holier-than-thou club. Legalists love to look down on anyone who doesn't measure up to their standards. Legalists love to play God, and they love to make rules for others to live by. You know anybody like that? They're hard to live with. That was a sin then, it's a sin now. Legalists believe that in order to be spiritual or in order to be mature, you shouldn't drink X drink. You shouldn't watch Entertainment Y. You shouldn't belong to Club Z. You shouldn't dress like Entertainer A. You should not vote for political party B. And you should definitely not agree with radio personality C. Legalists can't stand it that somebody else could be accepted by God without doing what they are doing. How is it possible that God could accept someone who's not doing what I am doing? Right? Now, historically, there's been extreme prejudice between Jew and Gentile. Scripture calls it literally a wall of separation. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a block wall that prevents them from interacting. When Jesus came and said, I am the way, no one comes to the Father but by me, he tore down that wall. He basically said, Jew and Gentile have equal access to God through me. Since everyone is saved by what Christ did and not based on what they did, now Jew and Gentile could accept each other regardless of their past, what they had done or they haven't done. And today... Now put your seatbelts on because I'm going to get pretty direct. The hatred between Jew and Gentile is analogous to the way some political parties treat each other today. <laughs> I'm going to buy duct tape. Some of you need to remember there will be both Democrats and Republicans in heaven. There will be both Jews and Gentiles in heaven. Your political beliefs will not get you into heaven, and they won't keep you out of heaven either. 
How you vote an earthly election is not a divine litmus test of spiritual maturity. Don't pray that your candidate gets elected to office or to the Supreme Court. Pray that God's will will be done because he may not agree with your choice. Our arrogance is only exceeded by our ignorance. Because we believe that God is on our side. This was extremely evident during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln brought it into perspective when he said, My prayer has never been that God is on my side. My concern is that I'm on his side. Because his position is infinite and ours is finite. When we pray that God will do our will, that contradicts the Lord's prayer. Which says what? Thy will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said at the end of the prayer, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Legalism is Satan's religion. Legalism is the enemy of grace because it makes man the center and not God. Legalism is pride and self-centeredness on steroids, and it results, it separates us from God, and it separates us from each other. You know, this is so convicting to me. It is so easy for Brad to believe that God loves people like Brad more. And God loves people who disagree with Brad less. Doesn't that sound awful? It's because it is awful. But it's really true. Because we're convinced that God loves us and people like us. And those people, we're not so sure about. The truth is, God is impartial. He doesn't play favorites. Anyone who by faith accepts God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ will go to heaven. You will be amazed at who you will see in heaven. And they may be amazed to see you there. <laughs> see, we don't make the rules. God makes the rules. Unity in the church is maintained only by a relentless commitment to the truth of the gospel and an unwavering focus on Jesus. When it's all about Jesus, always about Jesus, only about Jesus, the church will experience God's peace and God's power. And I really feel so blessed to be here after 15 years because this church family has always kept the cross of Jesus Christ front and center, and the proclamation of the gospel as our sole job description. When we get distracted from that, Satan will divide us over pettiness and his foolishness because it's not eternal. And this is what was killing the first century church. They took their eyes off Jesus and they started getting arguing about circumcision and did you eat pulled pork or not? I mean, all this peripheral stuff. Keep the central stuff the central stuff. So Paul not only regarded himself as equal to the other apostles, he's, he's defending his apostleship now. He says, I not only consider myself equal to them, I confronted Peter to his face. And Peter was the leader of the 12 apostles. He was a pretty, pretty big power broker in that area, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is the Hebrew word for Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when he came, when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Here's the principle. Don't let human opinion stop you from doing what you know is right because only God's approval matters. Don't let human opinion stop you from doing what you know is right because at the end of the day, only God's approval matters. So Peter came to Antioch probably after Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary tour um, in Galatia. It's probably 48, 49, probably 49 A.D. It was before the Jerusalem Council had occurred in 50 A.D. So Paul, Barnabas, and there's other leaders are pastoring this church in Antioch. And it is a burgeoning church. It's a thriving church. Jerusalem, of course, was the mother church. It was the, it was the location of where Christ died and was buried and resurrected, of course. And the church was founded in Jerusalem on Pentecost. So Jerusalem is really the mother church. But Antioch is the first place they're called Christians. And it is a Gentile church. And it is growing and blowing. A lot of things happening there. So when the, when the authorities began to persecute the believers in Jerusalem, a lot of them fled and many of them went north. Rob's going to show you a a map of Antioch. Antioch is on the Orontes River. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you walk 20 miles a day, it's about a two-week walk if you're going to walk up that far. If you walk 15 miles a day, it's a 20-mile hike. So it's a bit, of a, a bit of a walk. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. This is not a small little burg. It is a major metro area. The city of Rome at this point had about a million people. The city of Alexandria, the breadbasket on the on the Egyptian Delta, it was about 600,650. And this city, Antioch, is about 500,000 people. So you know, not, not too far off from Bakersfield. Kern County's got about 800. And what's the city I have now? 400 here? Something like that. So this church is really growing. It's growing to the point where they're sending out missionaries. Paul and Barnabas are two of them. And Peter's probably visiting up there at this point because he's heard news back in Jerusalem that this this church is growing. They're doing a lot of evangelism, and the Holy Spirit is working. So he comes up there and spends months with them. This is not a, a quick visit. It's an extended stay. And he's the leader of the 12. I mean, Peter is the leader of the 12 apostles. He's their spokesperson, and they are probably thrilled to have him there, and he's probably a real encouragement to them. And they're probably asking him a lot. Well, tell me about your walking on water. Right when you came off the boat and the storm, so he's probably giving, he's probably recounting a lot of face eyewitness time that he had with Jesus. Tremendous encouragement to them. So Peter's kind of a rock star, and Paul is not impressed. Does Paul confronts him to his face? This is not a subtle. You might think about it, right. This is face-to-face -face public confrontation. It's like Paul stopped him cold like a defensive tackle sacking an opposing quarterback and putting his face in the ground, right? This is a head-on collision. This is not a fender bender. This is in your face, face-to-face, -face, public confrontation. That's pretty strong. Here's the problem. Peter's up in Antioch, and he's living with Gentile Christians. Not many Jew Christians. These are all Gentile Christians. And he's associating with them. He's living like they live. He's free in Christ. He can eat what he wants. 
I kept thinking, you know, he's eating meals with him. I bet he's enjoying the new food he can eat. I mean, you know, because the Jews had a pretty restricted diet. Well, it was restricted. I won't say it's pretty restricted, but it was restricted, kosher. I don't know whether he's you know, eating BLTs now or whatever, but he's probably enjoying the new diet, and, and he's got freedom, tremendous freedom. And the Jews had always regarded the Gentiles as unclean. Historically, the Jews regarded the Gentiles as dogs, and that's what they would use the word. And that wasn't a pet dog. A dog was varmint at that point in time. And the feeling was mutual. The, Jews, the Gentiles despised the Jews as well. So there is an enormous amount of racism between these two groups, an enormous amount of distrust, an enormous amount of name-calling, and there's no contact. A Jew would not enter a Gentile home. A Jew would not touch anything that a Gentile had touched. They were afraid they would get spiritual cooties. Remember when you were a kid, you know, and you touched that, you had cooties. It was all infectious, you know, you could get killed from this stuff. Remember, God commanded Peter, you go to a Gentile Roman centurion named Cornelius. Preach the gospel to him. Peter does. Cornelius and his whole household respond by faith. Peter baptizes them, and the Holy Spirit falls on the whole group, and they're all speaking in tongues. God is showing the Jews who are with Peter that if I send my Holy Spirit on them, they are saved in the same way you are through faith in Christ. Not the Mosaic law, not dietary restrictions, not circumcision. The Gentiles are saved the exact same way the Jews are, faith alone in Christ alone. God does not play favorites. And Peter, when he's living with the Gentiles, he's having a great time. And then the Jews from Jerusalem show up. And they come to Antioch. And Peter is beginning to be influenced by them. And he's gradually beginning to distance himself from his Gentile brothers. See, Peter preached Jesus alone. Now he begins to treat his Gentile Christian family like second-class citizens. He won't eat with them anymore. Well, they're not dumb. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out they're not eating with me because his Jewish friends have him influenced, and they had probably told him, Peter, we need to have a little um, talk with you. This eating business with the Gentiles, it's going to hurt your ministry back in Jerusalem. It's really going to create problems when you really try and minister to the Jews back home in Jerusalem because your behavior is offensive to them. You're eating BLTs and touching the stuff the Gentiles done. They're going to reject your ministry back home. And if you want to be effective at ministering to the Jews, you got to stop this Gentile stuff, right? You got to, you got to pull back and not affiliate with those people. Of course, today we would say if you uh, hang out with those Democrats or those Republicans or those liberals, or those conservatives, or those Calvinists, or those Armenians, or those Lutherans, or those Catholics, etc., etc., etc. These are all human labels that have nothing to do with salvation. Peter feared rejection by the Jews, and so he rejected his Gentile family members. He feared human opinion, 
And his fear led to compromise, which led to hypocrisy, and Paul fronts him up in front of God and everybody. Verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. This is staggering. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's pointing out he's a hypocrite, and he's pointing it out publicly. Here's the principle. Your conduct is contagious. So be careful that your walk is congruent with your talk. Your conduct is contagious. So be careful that your walk is congruent with your talk. Paul uses a very interesting word. He uses the word straightforward. The Greek is ortho it means not straight-footed. It means not walking a straight line. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. That is a crooked path. Paul knew, Peter knew that God was impartial, and he loved Democrats and Republicans the same. Peter knew that Jesus had come to save Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world and the big children too, right? All the same. Peter knew that, but he wasn't behaving like that. There was a disconnect between what was coming out of his mouth and how he was behaving. And the results were disaster. They've taken their eyes off Jesus and now they're divided. And it says, even Barnabas was influenced by Peter's behavior, and he began to treat his Gentile family members and reject them and distance himself and cut off fellowship because he was falling under the slavery to the law. And we are so like Peter. Peter wants to be liked. Peter wants to be accepted by his peer group, by his buddies. That's us. We don't always do what we know is right. Often we get influenced by our godless environment instead of being a godly influence upon our environment. In our Christian walk, we often take two steps forward, one step backward. There are days I take one step forward, three steps backward. Have you noticed that Christian maturity does not progress in a straight line upward? that it's a very windy path, a long and winding road, as the Beatles wrote about in the 70s. We trip and we fall down. Like Peter, we take wrong turns. We hit dead ends. Have to turn around and start over again, sometimes pretty late in life. Have you ever looked at your behavior and said, um, I know better. I know better. But I did it anyway. Yeah, that's Peter. That's us. We say things we shouldn't say, do things we shouldn't do, even when we know better. And God loves sinners, which is good, because we have a lot of sin that needs His mercy. 
We know that God loved Peter because he sent someone to get him back on track. Who was that someone? Paul helped Peter get on track. We all need a Paul, someone who loves us enough to tell us the truth, even when it hurts. I read about a guy once who prayed every day that God would send someone to rebuke him when he needed it. Pastor Rogers talking about blind spots this morning. You need to go hear that sermon. It'll take some skin off you, but you got too much anyway. You know one of the ways God helps us with blind spots? Godly friends who tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it, especially when you don't want to hear it. That's how God helps us with blind spots. Somebody sees what we don't see. And it's so easy for us to say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. That is absolutely not me. Well, when four people come up to you and say, you know, you're walking on all fours. Maybe you should start looking for a saddle, right? God loves us enough to deal with our blind spots by sending us people who will tell us the truth even when it hurts. And Paul did that for Peter because he loved him and because he was not going to compromise the gospel because he knew that if you compromise the gospel, people go to hell. Satan wants to compromise the gospel. We know that Peter listened, we know that he repented, and we know he was restored because we know in Acts 15, he came out strongly against legalism. He confronted it, and he came out strongly to support salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And when you read his two epistles, First and Second Peter, he supports Paul enormously. So Peter's on the path to maturity. And we're on the path to maturity, too. It's a path. It's a journey, right? It's not a straight line. And Peter's journey should give us tremendous hope because the way sometimes is we get off course, but God loves us enough to send us someone to keep us on track. So let's summarize, and we'll have a few minutes to open it up for questions before Tom comes and leads us in prayer and praise. Number one. The gospel is God's plan, not man's. And you say, well, Brad, okay, that's pretty obvious. But the corollary to this, make time alone with God your number one priority. Satan will try and choke you right there. Do you know what the vast majority of Americans do the first thing they wake up? Look at their phone. Just a suggestion. Talk to Jesus before you look at your phone. Prioritize spending time with him because he already knows what your day is going to bring. And your next breath comes from him. Spend time with Jesus every day alone. Carve it out, protect it. If Satan can cut you off from the source of your life and your strength and your power, that's his number one job. Get you distracted, get you involved in trivial stuff, and cut you off from Jesus. Number two, never compromise the truth of the gospel since the eternal destiny of people depends on it. The world is filled with religious systems that call themselves Christians who have as their motto, Jesus plus something else. Our doctrine, our list, our rules, it's Jesus plus nothing. Only Jesus saves. 
Never take your eyes off that. Number three, don't let human opinion stop you from doing what is right. Because at the end of the day, only God's approval matters. And we are so susceptible to human opinion. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. The question is, by who? If we crave God's approval more than human approval, then we're on the right track. If we crave human approval more than God's approval, we are going to be led astray by human opinion. Lastly, I was going to rewrite number four. I wrote it as, your conduct is contagious, so be careful that your walk is congruent with your talk. I was going to say, your conduct is contagious, so cry out to God for someone to confront you daily. But I thought, whoa, if I say that, then I have to live that. <laughs> so now you know what to pray for Brad about, right? I can hear it. I'll get some texts this week. You need confronting. It's true. I do, because I have blind spots like you have blind spots. So that's part of the territory. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.